We met at this exclusive club called Five Hartford Street, which is really just a door with a number on it. You walk in, and it's this extraordinary environment of plush luxury, a place where a gentleman's club would feel like home for people who lived in grandiose, stately homes in the country for most of the uh, weekend and then came into London to their own private dwellings of equal beauty. This is the kind of place that's meant to feel like an office but isn't an office, where people sit and chat over very expensive drinks in the most opulent surroundings and hopefully feel about as comfortable as we felt. And we got to meet the man behind so much of what's happening in the UK. We sat down at a table in a courtyard where there are a whole lot of Roman and Greek architectural details hanging on the walls. And in walked a man looking smart as could be. You could see everything about him was bespoke, uh, very well uh, tailored outfit altogether and i'm not just talking about the man i'm talking about his interests as well ben goldsmith the son of financier james goldsmith and lady annabelle goldsmith ben has so many interests and we got talking about so many different things he's a a real fighter for the countryside in that he cares enormously about environmental affairs he cares about clean air he cares about a lot of different things he's into sustainability in a big way which is why he founded WHEB which is a leading european sustainability focused investment firm it manages approximately 500 million euros across private equity quoted equities and renewable energy infrastructure and when we were sitting talking to him he also told us among other things about the life cycle of eels. So I, um, I have a day job and a handful of outside interests, and all, all of which are in some way connected to the environment, the natural environment. So I've, I've got an investment business which I founded with a handful of partners. In fact, my immediate partner is South African, a guy called Graham Thomas, all right. who was at Standard Bank for years and was at Goldman Sachs before that, and ran the Rothschild Investment Trust here in London for a period of time. And um, we have a pretty flexible investment mandate in that we can invest in equities or we can lend money to people we can invest in funds we can invest anywhere we want the focus though is is energy and resource efficiency which is a kind of less scary way of saying green industries right so 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 i think of ourselves as a green fund but green scares mainstream investors even even though the whole energy system is being overhauled globally um and uh, by by the emergence of cheap green energy Investors still find that term green, like the term ethical or impact, a little bit frightening. So really, we focus on energy and resource efficiency. We invest in businesses which are, the exact wording is, either delivering or benefiting from the more efficient use of energy and water and raw materials and so on. Big so, emphasis in South Africa on sustainable energy because we've got a rubbish energy producer, ESCOM. It's all sort of parastatal mm. and... Um, we have to put up with power cuts. And well, all those old monopolies and vested interests are going to get turned over by the force of economics. I'm very happy to hear that. I mean, solar, the price of a solar panel. Just in the time since I started talking to Graham Thomas, we launched our business in 2015, so I started talking to him maybe a year and a half before. The price of a solar photovoltaic panel has gone from the same as a high-definition flat-screen TV to a window frame, like 90% reduction in kind of five and a half, six years. So solar is killing everything. So that's what I do. I've got a green investment fund with a with a, a mandate that looks more like a kind of merchant bank than, than, than a normal fund in that we can really invest in any way we want. We've invested in electricity transmission infrastructure in Brazil. We've invested in Volkswagen because we feel that they will be a big, big player in the electrified transport market. They're going to be one of the biggest electric car companies in the world. And we're sensible kind of Jeffrey Boycott investors, you know, build a sensible innings. And, and, and therefore, we'd rather own Volkswagen than Tesla. If you okay. from an investment perspective. Right. So that's what I do. That's my kind of day job. I'm chief executive of that firm. But I, I'm, I'm, also, um, I'm also pretty keen on trying to fix some of the big environmental problems we're facing. And, and so I'm, I'm on the board of the British government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. And I'm a special advisor to Michael Gove as the Environment Minister. And um, we're leaving the European Union. And, and, and that opens up a huge raft of opportunities for doing things differently because previously about 80% of laws that we have in this country that relate to the natural environment whether it's fisheries or agricultural subsidies or air quality rules or water quality all the whole lot 80% were decided in Brussels which was really a kind of 
some sense has been pretty good, but in some sense has been a disaster. So there's a whole, but we'll come back to that. But there's a whole bunch of opportunities, I think, around around reimagining how we manage our natural environment now that we're leaving the European Union. And there's a radical, free-thinking, highly intelligent environment minister in place at the moment. So I've got quite an exciting kind of stroke of luck in being close to him and being able to influence that. That's why I spent my day today. I've been in death row all day today. And then, the, and then the other non-executive interest I have is I am um, a trustee for the Britain's biggest philanthropist, it's a guy called Chris Hone, H-O-H-N, who is a... No one's ever heard of him, which is amazing, because he's the biggest philanthropist this country has ever produced. He was born the son of a car mechanic in Montego Bay, Jamaica, um, and they knew they had a genius on their hands. And he made his way here, went to university in Southampton, and is a financial genius and has created a hedge fund called the Children's Investment Fund, known in financial circles as TCI, which is, I think, Europe's biggest and most feared activist hedge fund. He runs about $30 billion for investors and takes on big companies. He's recently had a big fight with the London Stock Exchange and has a big <laughs> position in Google and big position in Airbus. And you know, he's a big, big player in, in financial circles. And he called it that because he always intended to give the money that he made personally to effectively tackling the biggest threats facing children in the poorest societies in the world. So he created a foundation simultaneously called the Children's Investment Fund Foundation, SIF, which receives most of the money that he makes through that hedge fund. And SIF is now the UK's second largest charity after the Wellcome Trust with $6 billion of assets and an annual grant budget of $300 million. So he is by far and away the biggest philanthropist in proportionate and also absolute terms that this country's ever produced no one's ever heard of him he's just this funny laid-back jamaican guy who gives gives 300 million dollars a year away out of this endowment um and and that foundation of which i'm one of four trustees is the biggest climate funder in europe because he and we have come to the conclusion that a changing climate is the biggest threat to children's well-being and health and prosperity and so on so we fund um climate initiatives around the world to the tune of about 100 million a year all kind of campaigning and advocacy and technical assistance and kind of targeted interventions that can change things as a hedge fund manager he's interested in leverage you know a small amount of money triggers a big change um and then we spend a lot of money on child protection with a focus on india so tens of millions of dollars a year helping to end the child trafficking child sexual exploitation trades in india and then, and then thirdly, we have a program which we call Survive and Thrive, but really is about helping teenage, young, well, children and teenage girls. So reproductive health, contraception, focus on Africa, um, severe and acute malnutrition, worms, n- neglected tropical diseases, this kind of stuff. So, for example, we're currently f- providing the finance to treat every single child in Somalia in one day of, de- of for deworming. So, like, so the average donation size is kind of seventeen, eighteen million dollars. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing organisation. So I, I, I'm close to him, and I'm close to the environment minister, and I spend time with both of them. And th- those are kind of my extracurricular interests. Um, but they could have synergies, obviously, as well. Yeah, of course, of course. In fact, they have conflicts as well because SIF is a funder of a group called Client Earth, which is an environmental legal advocacy group which takes people to court for doing bad things to the environment. And Client Earth is currently suing the British government's Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs over air quality. And I'm on the board of both SIF and DEFRA. So there's also conflicts as well. I mean, it's not easy. It's um, incredible. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so um, yeah, I sort of got lucky in the last year or so in terms of these two outside interests. Um, but I think... Um, That's quite a lot on your plate. It's enough. Not, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. No, well... No, no, no. Do you have time to sleep? No, 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 no. no, no. People, I always find the people who say that they're spectacularly busy are often are often the people who are least good at managing their time. Is that what I mean? But if you want something done, ask a busy person. Well, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, and um, so I always feel embarrassed to say I'm busy. <laughs> Is it true that um, sort of the future of um, energy, you know how typically the old school style was that um, production and consumption would happen at different places so there was kind of the power farms that would generate the energy and then it would be sent off to multiple different properties whereas now it's like decentralisation and it's going to be sort of consumption and um, production You guys must see this in Africa Yeah, I mean, the, the ultimate decentralisation 
same basis because with the arrival of mobile telephones and so on banking has become accessible to all sorts of people who didn't previously have access to communication or banking and energy is going the same way so the distributed energy I think is the most exciting kind of innovation taking place because that, 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 in the old days they would exactly as you said in the old days the kind of old model is produce as much power as we might particularly need in a particular moment of peak demand so Exactly. So, so we need enough base load capacity to accommodate kind of World Cup final. Everyone puts a kettle on at half time or whatever. You know, and they, they have a tremendous surge for power demand, and, uh, and, um, and 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 that's been turned on its head by, by distributed generation. And 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 I mean, the, the, so, so the Children's Investment Fund Foundation is trying to find a way to help countries like Mexico, which are kind of, sort of emergent economies, and South Africa. We have a program in South Africa as well. Move beyond the kind of thirty percent renewables ambition to a hundred percent. And you can't really go beyond 30% renewables, which are inherently intermittent. You get power from solar when the sun shines, you get power from wind when the wind shines. You can't go beyond that without a bunch of other kind of innovations. So, for example, you need to have a you need to develop storage well, so storage is a big one but there are easier ones than storage so, so obvious ones are advanced meteorological forecasting embedded into the grid so you know when you're going to generate surges in power and when you're not so it allows you to, to react to that secondly you need trans-regional sharing so for example Denmark will on days produce way more than it needs and will export that surplus to its neighbours and there are days when the wind's not blowing and it will import so we should be sharing power with Portugal you know, in a sunny August day in Portugal they should be exporting cheap so, surplus solar power to us and, and, uh, and, and this gives countries that otherwise have no real resource like Algeria which have kilometres and kilometres of desert a, a means to turn that into something valuable that's fantastic exactly it's, it's exactly right and there, there is a project called Desert Tech which is about right. putting cables underneath the Mediterranean to sell cheap solar power to but no I'm good thank you very much um, but, um, but, but then, 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 then there's also demand response so if you if you integrate dynamic pricing into a grid so that so that power prices go high when everyone wants power and it goes low when no one wants power and then every home has a smart meter which reacts to pricing you can then alter use so that you smooth out the peaks and troughs in demand so i mean we're not far away from a, um, a situation in which every house has a smart meter and the smart meter tells the washing machine to get working at 3 a.m or if you're charging your car in the garage the smart meter will buy cheap power in the middle of the night and denmark has gone one stage further with that such that workers are now supplementing their salaries by two or three thousand euros a year by charging their car when it's cheap at night, driving to work, and then plugging it back in, and the smart meter at home is directing the car to sell 50% or 75% of the battery power back to the grid when power prices peak during the middle God, of the day clever. and so so you everyone your, star, your car becomes a stock exchange so you so in, in, in effect you create an internet of power yeah. where people are downloading and uploading all the time according to pricing and so on and so so you're supplementing people's incomes that way but also you're dealing with the problem of storage rather than having to invest huge amounts of money in st- utility scale storage around the country which is also happening you just use the cars in the country as storage and there are plenty of cars all right but before we get excited about all of that there's donald trump who yeah. on two fronts must present you with problems the first what? one being his seeming dislike for sustainable energy and his preference for mining and, and coal and oil and all the rest of it because he's trying to protect the jobs yeah and then the other problem is that he's a climate denier yeah climate i mean i think i think that i think he's he's worrying <laughs> but not as worrying as all that because if, if you really look at it donald trump trying to save the coal industry by shoveling subsidies in their direction and possibly even legislating to ensure that utilities buy a particular proportion of their power from coal plants is it's a losing battle it'll be expensive and it'll be a losing battle it's kind of like trying to save blockbuster in the face of video streaming as arnold schwarzenegger pointed out in that brilliant little podcast a few days ago or 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 trying to save the compact disc when people started streaming music or or trying to save the rotary telephone it's it's it's, it's, i think i think there's nothing someone like Trump doesn't like more than being told that he can't. True, but but market forces market forces are more powerful than his ability to stop them. And and, and, and and the fact is that every single year, solar and wind in particular, just get so much cheaper than everything else. Yeah. Plus, you have all the externalized costs of coal, which no one accounts for. I mean, what's the cost of American kids getting asthma, you know, the premature deaths in American cities as a result of coal particulate pollution? The air quality you were talking about. The air quality, exactly. The, the tremendous pollution to the water courses from coal mining. I mean, 
the way they removed coal from mountains in Appalachia and one of the last kind of great wildernesses of the US, the mountaintop, they dynamite off the top of the mountain and all that spoil then spills down and floods the valley and destroys the valley and then they dig out the coal and they leave an obliterated landscape. So those externalities are huge and, and they're not accounted for properly. So I feel that um, even without the externalized cost, coal is simply not economic anymore. It's a dying industry and he can't pop it up. And the second reason why I'm not as concerned about Trump as others is that a lot of the action on climate is happening at the state and at the regional level. And sometimes it takes a great big bad guy from a Disney movie to motivate everyone else to be the good guy. And he is the Disney movie bad guy. And as a result, you've got city mayors joining hands and saying, our city... Yeah. Forget what Trump says. Our city is going for net zero. California is aiming for net zero. You know, states are clubbing together and agreeing ways in which they can phase out and move beyond coal. So I, I feel like state and city legislators and regional legislators are stepping up their game in response to Trump going the opposite direction. There's an amazing movement called the Green Tea, the Green Tea Party. Have you seen that? No. It's founded by a lady called Debbie Dooley, who was the... Um, the uh, coordinator or president of the Atlanta, Georgia chapter of the Tea Party movement. And meanwhile, back at home, Debbie wanted to put solar panels on her roof. And she discovered that the utilities were lobbying the state legislature in Georgia to put a tax on solar on people's roofs on the basis that it wasn't fair on the big utility producers if suddenly demand for their services would fall through the floor because of home solar. And she, of course, through her kind of small-c conservative free market libertarian instincts, which is what the Tea Party's about, decided that who is the state government to intervene in my ability, to my right to collect sunshine on my roof to power my house. So she teamed up with the left-leaning Sierra Club of Georgia, which is the environmental group, one of the big environmental groups in, in Georgia. And arm in arm the Tea Party movement the Green Tea Party movement which was founded and the Sierra Club successfully fought the legislature and now you have these kind of pan left right political alliances fighting against vested interest so it's um, I feel that Trump will only be able to go so far in slowing down the slowing down the rise of renewables and the move to a... I'm only being devil's advocate because I think I, I, I agree with you on, on all fronts. I, I also think that in our particular circumstances in South Africa, we have this, this really inefficient energy producer. Yeah. And we have huge amounts of solar energy we can reap. Um, we've got the, the, the natural resources in terms of coal, but it's, it's not... It's just not sustainable. It's becoming more expensive to extract. There are so many middlemen between the power producer and the coal miner. And it's not reliable. Yeah. It's been managed bad. I mean, we're we reaching a stage where solar, I think, can become like kind of, can, can become like mobile data. It can become virtually ubiquitous. I mean, I think we're going to reach a stage where buildings are made of solar stuff and roads. And yeah. The first solar road opened in France recently. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, 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 and there are buildings now, when I drive my kids to school, there are buildings in London where the whole side of the building is solar. And the panels are just becoming so cheap. And they've invented things kind of tiles which look like solar windows pricing is not there yet but windows that you see through like it's a normal window but it's generating power so i think solar will displace everything almost everything else and wind as well is becoming incredibly cheap what about batteries because we talked about storage well they're following a similar price trajectory are they so so they are but there there are issues there with mining out the material is expensive and dirty business and lithium lithium and and yeah mostly south america i think africa no i was asked to invest in a lithium mine in somewhere in Central Africa but I, I think storage plays a role for sure my neighbour in Somerset I have a farm 100 miles west of here where I spend I'm from Somerset are you? yeah I'm near, near Bruton I'm um, Long Ashton but um, so I'm, I'm near Somerset yeah, yeah. so I, I, I spend every kind of free day there so I go Friday morning if I can or Friday night and come back Monday and have a little farm there and so on and my neighbour there is quite kind of head of the curve forward thinking guy and he's got a Tesla battery which is huge it looks like a huge kind of iPod yeah. and, and, and there is a remote s- s- sort of office somewhere that manages these batteries that certain people have installed to the extent that they're trading power just like those Danish car owners but on a bigger scale so we already have some semblance of, of dynamic pricing here and it's, you know, it's becoming Kind of more sophisticated over time, but they're they're powering up certain times of day and powering down at other times of day and trading in order to make a return. So that's um, and you get if you're a battery or you're a gas-fired power unit of the size of this building, so a miniature one in a car park somewhere, you get what's called a capacity payment just for existing. So I have another friend who's Venezuelan who's invested a huge amount of money in 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 short-term gas kind of turbines like the size of this room, parked in the back of a Sainsbury's car park or whatever. 
and it might only operate for 40 hours a year or whatever but you can turn it on like that remotely and just having that backup capacity gives the grid kind of reassurance and the grid will pay you huge amounts of money just to exist and so so he would argue that whilst he's a fossil fuel business he's an enabler of a of a renewables renewables um but I think what's much more exciting, and it's not business, but, but from South Africa is a huge conservation nation. Mm. I think what's much more exciting is the conservation stuff, because I think that um, there's an awakening in this country that we've lost a lot. I mean, the equivalent of the, the big five or the big eight or whatever you see in South Africa has all been killed here. So we've lost in, in this country from the biggest to the smallest moose, bears, bisons, aurochs, which is an ancestor of the modern cow, um, wild boar, yeah. beavers, white-tailed white <laughs> eagles, wolves, you know, lynx, yeah. um, white storks, great bustards, pelicans. We had pelicans up and down the south coast of England as recently as 700 years ago. The last wolf was killed in Stirling in 1788. We've completely extirpated our wildlife in this country in a way that no other country has achieved. And, and, and we've extirpated whole landscapes from nature and brainwash the population to believe it's wild and beautiful. So you think of the Highlands of Scotland, for example, you know, picture, picture postcard. The Highlands of Scotland are the most ecologically denuded landscapes on earth. You know, perhaps, perhaps with the exception of the Arabian Peninsula, which would have been more of a savanna historically. But it's been completely extirpated. Even 300 years ago, after a lot of the charismatic megafauna have gone, you still had a mosaic landscape of kind of trees and clearings and glades and flowers. And, so all of that and, heather and, and heath is nonsense. It's sheep. It's a monoculture of sheep. Yeah. It's one of the most intensively managed landscapes on earth to the extent that it's completely unable to fulfill its natural function. And that is as water towers. You know, ask the Ministry of Environment from Uganda or Costa Rica or Pakistan or Nepal or anywhere that has hills. You know, how do you prevent floods and how do you reduce droughts? It's make sure that your hills and your mountains can fulfill the function for which they were designed, which is to be water towers. In other words, a healthy functioning ecosystem in the hills, trees, plants, wildlife, so on, can absorb water when it rains and release it slowly throughout the year. That's what they do. If you remove all the nature, then it rains and you get soil erosion, you get landslips and you get flooding. And that's why when we get flooding here every couple of years. It's headline news. People's living rooms are full of mud and water and people drown and cars get washed away. And it's always in the same places. It's in and around the kind of immediate vicinity of our uplands. It's kind of Cumbria and Fumberland, the borders of Scotland. It's around Dartmoor and Exmoor in the south. And no one ever points the finger at the fact that we've got completely denuded hills. And, 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 and yet people go there on holiday in the Lake District and they take a picture and put it on an Instagram and you know, I can see a long way so it must be I've got no mobile reception it must be beautiful it must be wild the reality is these are blank they're blank canvases which is the glass half full way of looking at it they're blank canvases and, and the reason why they're like that is principally because we provide subsidies to an industry which makes no economic sense whatsoever which is intensive sheep farming so we have we have just by way of illustrating how uneconomic it is we have a million and a half hectares of productive lowland agricultural land in Great Britain we have nearly three times as much uplands so we have about four million hectares of upland landscapes so nearly three times as much the million and a half hectares of lowland agricultural land produces 99% of the food we produce the uplands nearly three times bigger produce 1% in other words this is like Marie Antoinette's model peasant village Marie Antoinette famously used to like dressing up as a peasant and pretending to farm potatoes and look how charming it all is that's what we have in the uplands we provide a huge amount several billion pounds a year for sure so basically for show there is that there are elements of you know preserving you know community integrity and there, there are arguments to all that there's British literary romance around kind of the uplands Wordsworth Beatrix Potter you know the sheep Austin. the kind of bleak yeah. you know when I think of the British uplands I think of Myra Hindley and Ian Brady and those, yeah. those mass murders where they were hunting for the have <laughs> you seen those images you know you know when they do this have you ever seen those images yes, the boys. Yeah, yeah. it's the helicopters yeah. looking at the search parties looking for the children and all you see is just brown nothingness as far as the eye can see and if you look at the moors around Manchester right now Saddleworth Moor you've got some of the biggest wildfires we've ever experienced because we've drained the moors there's no, no water up there at all so it takes no time for them to dry out whereas they should be soaked landscapes with beavers creating pools and wetlands and glades of trees and it's very difficult to burn an English woodland if you want to burn an English woodland you have to cut the tree down and dry it out for six months in, in a, you know it's very difficult to, so you clear everything and then you have these tinderbox conditions and now we have these enormous fires you can't open your windows in Manchester right now you know there's you know 500 firefighters fighting against massive fires you've seen it in the news so 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 this is the great opportunity because we have an environment minister who I advise who has stated that the agriculture bill the first since 1947 which will come before parliament next month this month July will 
provide for the switching of all agricultural subsidy away from a, a model where we just give it to you because you're a farmer to a model of public money for public good. So if you're doing something which is defined as public good and there'll be a list of what is defined as public good, we'll give you money. If you're not, then you're not. So farmers effectively will have two income streams. They'll have the money they get from selling food and have the money they get from selling environmental services Correct. in the form of public good. And so if you're an upland farmer, you'll be helping reduce reduce flooding by putting vegetation in parts of the upland, allowing a bit of... plant trees and stuff? Well, and you don't really need to spend a huge amount of money planting trees. All you've got to do is reduce grazing pressure and they'll come back. You know, forests regenerate in most places pretty easily. You can accelerate the process with a bit of planting. But tree regeneration and, 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 and to the extent there is agricultural production in the uplands, you know, it, it, in my view, it should be an incidental to environmental land management. So, for example, what you don't want is Brazilian-style tree-to-tree forest. It would never have been that way. You'd have had grazing animals and so on. So you, you want extensive cattle, for example. You know, you want, that's what they had up there until the, until the highland clearances of the 1780s and 90s when they cleared people to put sheep. They quadrupled the rents overnight. It was a refugee. There were refugees, the Highlanders. They then they then put sheep there, and now of course that's ancient history is our Greek our, our great kind of sheep history. It's not. It's about two hundred years at most. It used to be extensive was that capital. to punish the Jacobites. What no, was no. It? it was it was it was the Duke of Sutherland cashing in on a demand for wool. And, and, and the Duke of Sutherland in the Highlands and in other places, they cleared the people by quadrupling the rent, brought in a shitload of sheep, and then in England, that persists in the form of this grotesquely uneconomic industry which is propped up by taxpayer money. And in Scotland, the sheep died out, but they switched to a kind of Victoria and Albert kind of a sat sort of a deer, deer, deer stalking. So, 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 you know, let's all put a hat that looks like Sherlock Holmes. Let's wear tartan. That's the wilderness. You know, this, this, is, um, this is how Scotland is. And it's not. It's invented by Albert, who was German, and Victoria, who was English. And, and, and people fell for it, hook, line, and sinker. And now you have these... If you go through the Highlands on those kind of dual carriageway roads, there were never trees here. It, the strip of land between the, the two carriageways of the road is full of flowers and trees. Or you look at the locks from the air, Google Earth, you'll see an island in the middle of a Scottish lock, and it's full of life. With like trees and flowers and God knows what else. And then it's just desert on all, in all directions for a thousand or five hundred miles in every direction. And you'll see these deer, mangy deer, milling about because it's about 20 times the carrying capacity. So they, fe- they feed them in the winter. And then they've got this deer stalking industry where you go up there, some, you know, kind of, it's basically can, it's like shooting cows in Hyde Park. It's like can shooting. There's no cover. There's no cover. They come to their feeding stations, boom, they get shot. You know, it's like those guys who shoot lions inside of Cajun South Africa. So, so, so that's all going to change, in my view. You know, through, through enla- good. enlightened land ownership and reforming agricultural subsidy. Well, there's a there's a bill coming before Parliament, the Agriculture Bill, which will say that from now on public money needs to be handed out in exchange for public good. There's no guarantee that Scotland will follow. By the way, they're independent, but the, the evidence suggests that they will. But but bear in mind that will also be great news for the Lowlands as well, because whilst we still want to farm productively in the Lowlands, we've got 60 million people to feed or whatever it is, we want to produce food. And we want to do so in a way that doesn't poison the water and doesn't lose the soil. We're losing a one one and a half percent of our soil is lost average every year. If you look at Great Britain from the air, there's a brown skid mark. You know, it looks like you know my kind of eighteen months old diaper. You know, it's like skid mark. Or you or you All go the coast. or go and stand on Blackpool Pier or you into Blackpool or Brighton or anywhere. The water's brown, right? Okay, that wa- the water was not soil. brown. The water was blue. The reason why the water's brown is that's our soil. That's how we feed ourselves. And yet we farm intensively. We there's no. Th- thought to kind of you know all you need to do is plow sideways along the contour if you if you plow upwards the soil runs off when it rains now there's all sorts of ways that you can continue to farm productively whilst protecting your soil whilst storing carbon whilst not spraying kind of nerve gas all over the you know new technology around satellites do, and drones and big data do londoners care as much i mean i can hear how, how much work you've done here and how much you've thought about this and how much reading you must well, have done well, how many so, people so, you've spoken to do londoners care enough so, so, so as a nation, we're wildlife lovers. You know, the David Attenborough show mm. at Blue Planet was the most watched television program ever, yeah. ever, and certainly the most watched last year. I mean, I mean, you know, a third of the population watched it. Um, as, as a nation, you know, eight to ten million people give money annually to an environmental organisation. You know, we feed the birds. You know, every British family has a bird feeder in their garden. You know, we, we love hedgehogs. We care about wildlife. You know, so, so, so overwhelmingly, Britons want to see a natural or kind of environmental renaissance in, in, in their country. And people are starting to notice that wildlife is depleted. You know, if you take you take a drive when you were a cat, how old are you? 
14. So, 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 so you go, when, we, when we were all kids, you go driving somewhere in the summer in your parents' car, and you have to stop because the windscreen was covered in insects in the summer. Yeah. You know, after now you can I can drive to Somerset. There's no insects on my windscreen. Now, there's been a collapse in insect numbers. There's been a collapse in bird numbers. There's been a collapse in all sorts of things. You know, the the, the rivers. Even when we were when I was a child, not that I saw it myself. So the autumn equinox most rivers in England were black with eels literally black with eels there's been a 95% decline in eels in my lifetime you know it's, it's, it's all disappearing because of 95% decline in European eels do you know how the eel the eels life cycle yeah. the most interesting of all the animals that live in this country Tell is me. the humble eel so the eel, will, so the eel will, is it kind of omnivore, will eat anything, will live in a patch of water. So it could be in an estuary, it could be in a river. Could, it, it could, they can move across at night time when the ground is wet, they can move to a pond. It might even be in a well. And an eel will live for 20-ish years, 25 years, in a body of water, quite territorial, and it will live there. You can have one in your pond in your local park. Okay? At a particular moment, in advance of the autumn equinox, when there's no moon at night, They'll turn blue. Over a period of like two weeks, a black eel, aged 20, 25 years old, male or female, will turn a brilliant, brilliant blue. Like, as in the colour of like the Caribbean Sea, will turn blue. And it will then travel on moonless, moonless nights to find the nearest watercourse. It will then swim down the stream, down into the river, out the estuary, and will spend three to six months swimming across the Atlantic to a particular spot, 40 square miles, just off Bermuda, called the Sargasso Sea, where it will congregate, where it will congregate with eels, amazingly, from America and from the whole of Western Europe. And they, one of the great natural wonders of the world that's never been witnessed is they go down about a mile into the inky blackness and they'll form an enormous mating ball, like millions, and in the old days, billions of eels, on a particular moment, on a particular moment each year, and they don't know when and at what time and where. All we know is that eels go there to mate and die. And if you catch an eel on its way in the river, it's brilliant blue. And they're black, but they turn br- brilliant sky blue. They then breed, okay, down there. Then the little elvers go up, and amazingly, the American ones know, because they're genetically different, to go east, oh, sorry, west, and the European ones come east. They then spend three years swimming back to Europe, and when they're born, they're that big. By the time they arrive, they're called elvers. They're a Japanese delicacy. And they get washed up into the rivers from kind of Iceland, Scotland, all the way down to Spain. Some of them will go up the English Channel and end up in Denmark. And they get scarcer and scarcer the further east you go. Some make it into the Mediterranean, up into the Spanish rivers. And then they swim up the rivers and then they go and find themselves a pond and they live there for 20 years. And the problem is, is that that's such a complicated life cycle that as soon as you start building weirs and dams and making their passage difficult, and as soon as you start netting them, so now the, the illegal poachers will sit at the river mouths. When the elvers come in, which is kind of spring equinox time, every year they come in on the way they will just sit there with nets and catch them by the billion and then send them to Japan and the population has plunged 95% in 30 years so the eel was once so numerous that in the eastern US they reckon that 40% of all freshwater fish biomass was eels that's out of all the fish in the east coast 40% were eels and now it's down by down. And um, President Macron of France has announced a, um, a liberation of the rivers and they're smashing up and breaking down all the kind of pre-war and, and, and post-war kind of infrastructure, the weirs, the little dams, well, smashing it all up to allow the eels to come back. And it's got like a kind of, like a kind of anti-poaching squad, you know, from, from kind of, you know. So uh, there's a book called... The, the a, Eel Force. Yeah, The Eel Force. <laughs> so I think we're going through, um, I think with Macron in charge of France and with a with a kind of um, awakening here I think we're going through quite an exciting time for the environment and I think the, shif- the shifting of, inv- of agricultural subsidy is the biggie so actually Brexit is um, there's lots of, I don't think there's it's a, anything to do with that it's certainly a, whether you hate or love Brexit it's a, it's a big positive the fact that we're going to move to a model of public subsidy for public good in the countryside, you know, three to four billion pounds a year, directly incentivizing land managers to do the right thing, you know, you're suddenly going to you're suddenly going to see a change within three years, two years, three years. You'll look out of your car window and you'll see flower-rich borders around fields. You'll see new ponds appear. You'll see people restoring their hedgerows. You'll see new trees getting planted. You'll see the river quality clearing up. All that stuff is going to happen, and we're the first country in the world to design a system like that. You know, and in the and in the uplands, it'll be even more dramatic. Because there's just no money in sheep in that place. No, without environmental land management payments, there's nothing. So I was tipped off to ask you about legalising marijuana. Yeah, of course we should. It's absurd. I think it's completely absurd. Don't you? Absolutely. I mean, I think... Apart from in South being... Africa, there are, there are peasant farmers who are... The police come in and they actually burn down their crops. And they're cash crops for them. And they're not... They're not um, selling them to children on street corners. They're going 
into the community and saying, here is some of this that I've grown and getting a very reasonable price for it. And it's being shut down by government. Oh, what about in St. Vincent and the Grenadines? The Drug Enforcement Agency, not that long ago, flew with aeroplanes over crop dusters and sprayed Monsanto's Roundup, which is a herbicide, over smallholders in St. Vincent. Jesus. No checking whether the kids That's are cruel. playing in the field. No checking what they're growing there. You know, St. Vincent's a really poor country. They're growing their own crops. They have mixed crops, right? Mixed yeah. crops and some yeah. weed and so on. And yeah. Yeah. Imagine the arrogance of doing that in another country. So, but I think that, um, A, it's just patently absurd to, to, you know, the, to, to tell me what I can't smoke and what I can smoke. And what, you know, it's, I, I don't believe that gov- it's a major overreach by government in the, in the first case. I don't think that's the role of government to police our daily habits. The government can get fucked. But secondly, I also think it doesn't work. Let's just say we hate marijuana and we think it's the, it's the devil's kind of, you know, devil's substance and it's going to send all our children crazy and we hate it. Well, even so, banning it is not the answer because use just goes up. All yeah, drugs, yeah. use just goes up every single... Deteriorates the issue. No, we've got, natural you've got to legalise, you've got to regulate. And, and, this, and then there are tax uh, benefits. And, and exactly. And what was it? The mayor of Seattle said, the big winners of legalisation in Washington State have been the police, because they no longer have to police marijuana, yeah. and the taxpayer because we're getting a whole chunk of cash every quarter. The big losers are the drug traffickers and the drug dealers on street corners because right. they've had their business pulled out from underneath them. And um, that makes that makes. But the, the worst the worst kind of output from prohibition of marijuana is that you know, kind of the kids in my family, you know, they smoke skunk, which is a kind of ultra-strong, yeah. moonshine, chemically, artificially grown form of marijuana because it's all they can get their hands on. It's the same way that in the prohibition of alcohol in the United States, people drank moonshine because you don't want transporting Lafitte 1941 or whatever, crazy, you know, or, 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 or beer. Cheap, nastily made stuff. Cheap, strong, concentrated. Yeah. And skunk is like cheap. They grow it in slave houses. You got slaves from Vietnam or wherever. You know, people traffic, yeah. trafficking people and put them in these houses and grow them under artificial lights and stuff it with fertilizers and then sell it on on, on, on street corners and that's what kids smoke and, and that really does have a problem with people's you know, makes you go mad yeah. then, you know, if, if it was legal they'd be buying you know Good stuff. nice Jamaican weed or nice Moroccan hash and it would be legal and it would be regulated and kids wouldn't be able but to I don't buy think, it but I don't think any drugs should be legal it'll happen by the way you've seen all the furore around medical marijuana in the last two weeks here have you seen any of that well, no, a kid with um, kid with epilepsy, mm. Mm. up to two hundred fits a day. The only thing that worked was cannabis-based treatment. The mother couldn't get it um, because it was illegal, so she went out abroad, bought it, declared it, came in, and they tried to arrest her and take it off her, and they succeeded. The kid then's in hospital having fifteen fits an hour, and the home secretary intervened and said, "Right, she can have the drug she wants." And I'm announcing a. I'm announcing. Nice to see you. Um, I'm an, <clears throat> announcing a review on the laws around medical cannabis, and it's happening. And and once you legalise medical cannabis, recreational follows very quickly because then you say, oh, I'm anxious. You know, I can't sleep at night. Yeah, you, <laughs> once it becomes a grey area. Right. Well, wait, if I <laughs> yeah, so I mean, that's what happens. In you, know, you then get you then get you. Know. So I, <clears throat> I get it'll happen. If you, if I wrote a list 15 years ago of all the things I wanted to happen in this country. It feels like they're all happening. Good. There's lots of bad things as well. It's quite positive. <laughs> on the environment, it's all good news. Banning of plastics and so what's bad? Plastic what, things, what's, amazing. What do you? Yeah, we spoke about this just on the way here, actually. And Eleanor was saying how it irritates her that there are people who just don't see the value of recycling and of, of, of separating rubbish and how, in certain places where the rules are strict, people are happy to comply and they feel like they're making a contribution. And it's all going to change. Only really dreadful people don't care about that stuff. I know, but I think you still need you still need sticks and carrots from government. So, for example, you need, in my view, you need a tax on virgin plastic. If you're if you're um, Coca Cola and, and you find that virgin plastic is actually more expensive than recycled plastic because of a tax, you're going to use the recycled stuff. Yep. So that encourages recycling and puts a, more of a value on material collection and so on. And I think you just need a ban on single-use stuff. I mean, a single-use straw or a straw or single-use plastic knives and forks. and All those things are banned in France now. You know, you need to, you need to, you need to ban them. You need to ban plastic bags. I think it's all going to happen. There's a significant mind shift that needs to happen, right? So now I'm, you know, whenever I go out and I open a straw, I'm rejecting straws, and people just look at me, what? What is a straw? Yeah. Or if I'm being super efficient, 
actually have my own paper straws. Mm. Yeah. Which is, yeah, which is also that's goes very, down. People just think that's very a bit industrious weird as well. They're like, yeah, thank you, you have your own paper straws. Well, it's happening though. Yeah, it's really to like Britain water filters. What's interesting is tourism, like the, the, the kind of millennial generation, the kind of under 35s, they don't want to do the same tourism that their parents did. They don't want to go to a thousand room hotel in the Costa del Sol and sit on a beach and go to the bar and they go back to their room. They want to go to a, a six bedroom boutique somewhere in Florence or they want to go and stay in a farmhouse bed and breakfast somewhere in, you know, in, in, in kind of Cantyshire or whatever. They want to do, they want experiences and they want to go to different kinds of places. They don't want to go to those big corporate places anymore and they've got a kind of a sort of consciousness around environmental and kind of cultural appropriateness now. And so it's, it's really changing. It's really, I think, I think there's like a social media has kind of unlocked this kind of. I think so, it's very true in our generation. Yeah. Massively. We were just on this um, boat last week, and um, obviously, all the water that you can drink is just bottled water. But we all just were, we were all debating it. We were saying, gosh, look at how much water we, or how much plastic we're wasting. I know. We, we were saying to the, to the staff, we were like, please, can we make sure this is recycled? Because it's just so awful. Exactly. No one would have thought about that 15 years and ago. And yet, we were like, God, are we just a very conscious group? Or is this, you know... No, I had the same... Just, I was just on holiday in Greece, and the yeah. tap water... I The tap, tap water's non-drinkable, and the same with a friend of mine there. And um, we must have drunk through 80 bottles of plastic water. I wrote to the the person, who, the company that organised the villa for my friend, and I said we had such a lovely time, but bottled water is such a crime. I mean, sure, sure, yeah. Surely you can put dispensers, you know. My mother has a dispenser, you know, in a big tank or something. It's a dispenser, those bottles, that you know, the office bottles. Yeah, yeah the bubble. Yeah, yeah the bubble. Or, or filter on the tap. What, um, you, you did say just now that all the things that you've wished for 30 years ago are starting to happen. But you said that there were some things that are not happening or that are worse that you're worried about. What are those? I mean, I think the indicators are all, you know, looking at the natural environment, the indicators are all continually downwards so we haven't yet figured it out we just think in a policy sense things are changing and in a kind of social awareness sense things are changing and those are the ingredients you need to kind of slow down and 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 reverse the trends but still every year there are fewer swifts returning from africa and flying above our heads screeching and there are fewer amphibians returning to each pond and breeding and 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 nature is under assault and um and those indicators just continue to get worse and worse and um, so I I, 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 I feel like like we kind of know what needs to be done now and there's a willingness to do it and it's all kind of starting to happen but the question is will we do it fast enough or will it be too late because I think there are tipping points that we're not fully aware of you know and I think if you go too far things collapse and like the, the great greatest fishery of of kind of the world ever was the cod fishery of the Grand Banks of Canada and they just they just decimated it in the late 90s ramped up production and put boats out that were like the size of ferries and just basically hoovered up all the cod and one day there was no more cod and they'd never come back ever they just took too many and they couldn't so I you know I think you could, I think things can disappear and they, they then become you know then becomes impossible to rebuild them so the question is how quickly we can turn it around and um, I think nature is the issue. Yeah, I think I think um, it's like everyone talks about climate, and, and it's all linked, obviously. And climate is the great crisis of our time, but also the destruction of nature. You know, kind of burning the library of life. You know, that's and um, and I feel like um, yeah, but I feel like a lot of the kind of answers are starting starting to kind of come to the fore. No. So who knows? It's good work. It's it's important work. Yeah. yeah. I'm 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 very pleased to hear that some of these things are turning around here. And we, although we have such an abundance of, of natural wildlife and, 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 and fauna and flora and all the rest of it in South Africa, we've, we've sort of put that on the back burner. I, I interviewed a guy just three weeks ago who's written a book about the, the history of our big nature reserves. Yeah, and he was talking about how a lot of that stuff has been neglected in recent mm. years. So we almost need to start doing what you're doing here before it's too late, as yep. it became here. Yeah, because although you do have national... We have no national parks at the moment. None. So, well, in the sense that our national parks are not national parks in the sense yeah. that any other country would recognise them. In the sense that our national... I mean, the emblem of the Yorkshire Dales National Park is sheep. And there is actually less... There is less diversity and abundance of wildlife in our national parks than there is outside. God. So if you go to Dartmoor, I mean, look up on your phone later a picture of Dartmoor, or yeah. 
the North Yorkshire Moors or any of these places. And like I said, it's just a, it's just a, it's just a monoculture of heather and heather or, or short grass. You know, heather heather is a pioneer plant. If you if you scorch the land, the first thing that pioneer that pioneers the space is heather. And so it's like an incredibly important piece of, of, of nature that kind of heals the land, but it's quickly followed by then birch trees and other things, and that's like a transitional thing. What we do is keep it in a permanent state of scorchness in order to maintain heather. Um, and, um, so yeah, so you have great national parks and great tracts of wilderness still, which we don't have any. We don't have any here. You know, if, you, if you want to go and see nature in this country, you have to get on an aeroplane. Yeah. If you want to see what real wild nature, you know, I'm, I'm taking my kids camping in northwestern Spain in Asturias in August for a few days and just my two boys actually and um, we'll see bears and we'll see wolves and, and this is a place that's about the size of southern England in the kind of north eastern corner of the Portuguese border it's called Galicia or the, the Picos de Europa and then Asturias and this whole part of Spain this was the most impoverished land in pretty much in Europe really really poor people lived there and they ran goats typically and sheep and just scratched a living from really unforgiving land and with the kind of economic progress of the 1960s and 70s they left and went to Madrid or wherever Bilbao they left and you had widespread land abandonment and with the land abandonment came the wildlife you know, trees started to grow back bears came down from the Pyrenees wolves and this kind of relatively empty space was rewilded naturally and has now been recolonized by people and the grandchildren of the people who left have gone back to reopen places where they lived as bed and breakfast hotels and to train up as guide you know, I've hired a wolf guide I and mean, probably eight different people are going to help me out in one way or another I've got a camping guide I've got a wolf guide I'm going to go kayaking one day I've got someone whose whole business revolves around taking people to swim in natural spots so we're going to spend an afternoon swimming in a river here upon you know, just so there's a whole industry there around amenity and, sounds more profitable than sheep farm well I think in that part, in that part of Spain for sure in that part of Spain for sure and, uh, and so the, it's in fact the only part of rural Spain where you've got a growing economy is there. 350,000 tourists last year and Asturias have changed the brand name of Asturias. It's now called like where you find natures, nature's wonders or something like that. You know, they have a sippy little catch line underneath. Yeah. That's what they now call themselves, the nature state kind of thing. And because of this, and it was all an unintentional process. So I think something the same is going to happen in our wild places, but it'll happen intentionally rather than unintentionally. That's terrific. Yeah. Where, and do you think it'll happen in, in the in these uplands that you speak of, or, or yeah, in the yeah. Netherlands first? I think I think I think I think over the next ten years, I think money will start to flow from the taxpayer and also from insurance companies and water companies, and, so and we'll start paying landowners to create the landscapes that we want because we want to reduce flooding. A pound spent here reducing flooding by planting trees will offset fourteen pounds you would have had to spend here on concrete ditches and dikes and God knows what else. Yeah. 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 I noticed the river was quite low today when we walked Where were you? The, the Thames here over Westminster Bridge. Yeah. It's quite sort of low and brown. And, yeah. You know, it might be tidal though. Might be. The tide comes in and out. Might be. It didn't look very good. Last time I saw it, it looked a little more healthy. Yeah. But maybe it's just seasonal. London is full of rivers under, underground. Did you know that? Yeah. All the tributaries, a lot of the tri- like the Fleet Fleet Street, the Fleet River is underground mm-hmm. in a pipe. Really? The Wandle and the Wandsworth. Did you not know that? Yeah, London, we, we built over them all. The what? The Yeah. Where, which part? Are you from London? Yeah, I'm from South London. Whereabouts? Uh, born and bred in Clapham. Yeah. My kids are really close. My my older kids are in Barnes. So I go to Clapham Junctions where I meet them to go anywhere. Barnes Yeah, Barnes is really nice. How's that this morning? So you're, you're in London only? Or? Yeah, we're in London for, for the week and then going back to South Africa on Sunday. So it's just a, it's a You're not going to leave London at all? I want to. Uh, Sunday we may. Is there any um, cricket on this weekend? Yeah. You're going to Henley on Thursday. Oh, we are doing Henley, sorry. Well, the Thursday test match? Right. No, it's 2020. Uh, where is that? Lords. Uh, Lords. You should try and go and see some cricket. Well, we are going to Henley on Friday. What's the 20? Are you a cricket fan? I'm going cricket. cricket on <laughs> Who's playing? Who's playing? It's just county. It's Middlesex, Surrey. So yeah. So I love that you like cricket. I wish my wife, I'm a wife loved cricket. Fan. Did yeah. you ever see Fire I'm, in Babylon? I'm because I made a yeah, film about that. cricket. Yeah, you did. You um. Did it, didn't I got. I, I got. I was. Yes, I got him to do it. So I was at a dinner hosted by David Tang, China Tang guy, and um, I was watching on my phone the World Cup cricket in which. The the um, Sri Lankan sling, uh, sort of, they call him Slinger Malinga. Do you remember Lassit yeah. Malinga? Yeah. He got four wickets in four balls against South Africa and nearly won the match at the very end for mm-hmm. 
for, for, for Sri Lanka. South Africa saw it at home. They called it a beaver trick, I think, four and four. And I was getting all excited about this. And the guy next to me was like, I don't really get cricket. What's so exciting about this? And um, it turns out the guy was in the business of making documentaries. And um, I said, you know, we should make a documentary about cricket. He said, well, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd make... Make a film about the great West Indies cricket team of '75 to '91, the the, the the most dominant sports team in any sport in in world history. Really, they were undefeated for what 16 years, 15, 16 years, undefeated, an incredibly charismatic bunch. You know, guys that grew out of a lot of them came up came from real poverty, and 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 kind of coinciding with the rise of this team to dominance in cricket was the kind of rise of West Indies culture generally. Previously, been. Um, been sort of under the kind of colonial boot and suddenly they got their independence in the late 60s early 70s those islands and suddenly there was this kind of cultural kind of upswelling are you originally is your family from the West Indies Jamaica Jamaica your parents grandparents parents oh really so you get this yeah. okay so you know more about this I'm not speaking about something she knows much more about than I do but suddenly there was like Bob Marley and there was like you know kind of reggae music and too. well my grandmother was <laughs> was she yeah yeah. My dad loved that film. Yeah. So yeah. Anyway, so this guy Charles Steele. Sorry, I'm being long-winded. He said it's great. Let's do it. We had lunch next week with a guy called John Batsick who won an Oscar for his film called One Day in September about the Munich Olympics. Yeah. And he also made a film called Once in a Lifetime about the New York Cosmos. And he made a film about that singer who was famous in South Africa but never knew it. Rodriguez. Rodriguez. He made Rodriguez. that film. Oh, I love yeah. that film. Bloody good. Yeah. Mr. Uh, Sugarman. Yeah. So, so John Batsick and I teamed up with this guy Charles Steele. We made Fire in Babylon. And I got my brother-in-law's Imran Khan, former captain of Pakistan. Yes. He's going to be the next prime minister in two weeks, by the way. And, and Imran called up all these guys, Viv Richards, Michael Holding, all these guys, put me in touch with them. And I spent, I'm supposed to be investing in renewables, and I spent every Wednesday evening for a year <laughs> in a cutting studio in Soho, drinking beers, eating pizzas, and watching interviews with like Gordon Gray and things God, and then we and then we launched the movie in Kingston Jamaica in in I can't remember 2011 or something yeah and it sold a lot of DVDs we won an award the Grierson award for best historical documentary sold nearly 200,000 DVDs in a month it's pretty oh, cool and I'm the exec producer and it's got the best soundtrack yeah. oh, best. I bet have you ever watched it have you no I am now I swear, to, I swear to you you will not enjoy another movie more this year it's called Fire and Babylon so we covered a lot from the life cycle of eels to solar energy to power in places like South Africa, and what Ben noticed about the environment around him and how that could improve. He said that 8 to 10 million Britons give to an environmental cause one way or the other, and gave us a very frank point of view about his stance on medical cannabis. He also produced that incredible documentary, Fire in Babylon, which I remember Ben had told us, our own Ben Karpinski had told us about just a few months before. So there's plenty of homework for anyone who's interested in Ben Goldsmith. And there's lots of really, really interesting behind-the-scenes info, too.